Onward to Victory is proud to join forces with WCScreens.com, where you can get custom screen printing and embroidery at wholesale prices. With WCScreens.com, you'll always know the snap count. They ship nationwide and can save you or your company money. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. You ever heard the expression, as mysterious as George Gipp's girlfriend? Okay, it's possible I just made that up, but today I'm joined by Bill Fuller, author of The Forever Year, a work of historical fiction romance about the final year of the Gipper's life, his legendary 1920 season, and his enigmatic relationship with a certain Miss Iris Trapier. We talk about Gipp in a fashion you probably have never heard before. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and we are rolling, and welcome to this 48th installment of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I am the host and creator of this humble enterprise. Thank you so much for electing to spend some time with me here today, wherever you may be joining from. I promise you this much, folks, I have a real gully wumper for you today. I promise you, regardless of your familiarity with Notre Dame legend George Gipp, Today, you're going to hear him discussed in a way seldom, if ever heard before, as I speak with Bill Fuller, author of The Forever Year, a book based on the real-life romance of George Gipp and Iris Trapier. But first, I'd like to thank two of my pals and perhaps the most loyal sons of Aaron I know of, Onward to Victory Consensus All-Americans, Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, and Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana. As show consensus, all Americans, they have provided ongoing financial support of the show, now dating back to well over a year ago. It is in large part because of these two guys that I am still on the air. So thank you so very much, gentlemen. If you are interested in becoming a consensus all American yourself, I'll let you know how you can do so in show wrap. And I would also like to take a moment to thank new show sponsor, WCScreens.com who will be the official sponsor of the 2021 season, where the Irish will look to notch their fifth straight 10-win season. WCScreens.com will be with us every step of the way, so make sure you visit their website if you need quality, affordable screen printing or embroidery. These guys are absolutely among the best in the business, so throw your support behind them at WCScreens.com. Since the show is on every major podcast provider out there, be sure to like, subscribe, do whatever it is that you got to do to make sure you're being alerted to all the new show episodes. And if you're feeling particularly nice, throw a view out there for the show as well. I'd really appreciate that. So you may have some questions coming into this episode, and that's okay. Your first one may be, Alex has a guest today. What gives? Well, it's true. This is actually a rarity. Bill represents only the third time this has happened and the first time since episode 17, way back in March of 2020. 
when author and my pal Jeff Harrell joined the show. You may be asking too, Alex, we're talking about a romance novel today. What gives? Well, let me unpack this a little bit. First, if you're new to the show, I'll take this opportunity to tell you, or if you're not new to the show, to remind you that I have to believe that I am one of the biggest George Gipp fans out there. And uh, this is a spot on the mantle I take very seriously. Just ask my loved ones. But this is actually the third episode of the show that has revolved around George, at least primarily. And I try to continuously absorb Gip facts, perspective, insight, whatever it may be. And that's because aside from being a phenomenal football player, he was such a fascinating and nuanced person. What do I mean by nuanced? Well, Gip was, if nothing at all, incredibly paradoxical. He was a college student who hadn't graduated from high school. Despite having a bustling social life, he was a loner with very few real friends. He was very charming, but very mischievous, a scoundrel even. He was amazing at football, but he much preferred to play baseball. He often acted very aloof, but never like he was better than anyone else. He lived a lifestyle that, at Notre Dame at the time anyway, wasn't just frowned upon, but against all of the rules. I mean, don't forget, he didn't even live on campus. He opted instead for a lavish suite at the Oliver Hotel in downtown South Bend. I guess at the end of the day, he just didn't seem to care for anyone's rules at all. Whether you have read Jack Cavanaugh's 2012 book, The Gipper, the late Patrick Chellin's One for the Gipper, or even Murray Sperber's Shake Down the Thunder, one of the biggest points of intrigue when it comes to Gip is this mysterious relationship between George and an Indianapolis woman named Iris Trapier. This was a relationship that ran its course throughout 1919 and 1920, and one that reputedly only ended as Gip was drawing his final breaths on Earth. So while browsing eBay for George Gip stuff, which I tend to do often, Bill's book crossed my purview. I was kind of surprised because I hadn't heard of it before, and I'm someone who is generally actively looking for this kind of thing, at least when it comes to George Gipp. So I stared down the cover, probably squinted my eyes at it a tad, trying to make something of it. The cover itself, and go ahead and jump over to Google right now, Bill Fuller, The Forever Year, but the cover itself has the trappings of a romance novel. Two figures, one representing George and the other Iris, standing in the middle of a grassy field while the sun is setting, with the unmistakable golden dome and steeple of the basilica peeking over a tree line in the distance. After giving the cover about a minute hard stare, I thought, what the hell, I'll give it a whirl. <laughs> the book arrived, and again, I had it in my hands and I examined it a bit before cracking it open to begin reading it. Now, traditionally, I am a voracious reader, even, of non-fiction. And despite typically being an optimistic person, I was pretty skeptical at this point, and I was almost certain that I was not going to like this book. And I'm not so arrogant to say that I'm not going to like this book because I don't think it's good. I can dislike a book that is very good, but perhaps it's just not my speed or 
not in my wheelhouse, so to speak, and that's kind of what I thought about this book. Again, while just glancing at the cover, reading the front and back, and kind of giving it a very quick examination. But I was only halfway finished with the book when I jumped on the internet, I found Bill's website, and I sent him an email to ask him for an interview. He graciously replied that he would make time for me, and I was elated. I finished the book, and I'll tell you this much, Irish fans. This is absolutely indispensable reading. If you're a fan of the Gipper or Notre Dame football during this particular time, or really just Notre Dame football, period. There are some heavy elements of romance in the book. Bill really shows off his romantic chops. And it is a work of fiction, albeit historical fiction. But let me tell you, Bill puts the historical and historical fiction in this one. He does an absolutely amazing job painting an accurate picture of that time for the reader, and particularly this time of Notre Dame football and the Notre Dame campus. And these subjects, I mean, it's not like they would have been easy to tackle. Everything that I ever thought Gip would be or Gip was, Bill seems to hit all the right buttons. He spins this fascinating narrative around this mysterious relationship and makes every character feel so accessible to the reader. Even if fiction or romance isn't your thing, first of all, I get it. This book will make you laugh, pump your fist, gasp in utter amazement. And even knowing how it ends, it'll still send you hurtling on an emotional roller coaster. I simply can't recommend the forever year enough. And without further ado, here is my conversation with the book's author and new friend of the show, Bill Fuller. And welcome back to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. I am really, really excited to be here. I'm joined by Bill Fuller, who is the author of The Forever Year. We're going to have a conversation about his work and the origin of Forever Year and also kind of how he developed these characters. As you know, uh, I'm a huge George Gipp fan. And so after reading this book, as I kind of mentioned, I, I reached out to Bill and fortunately, he, he gave me some time and uh, he's here with us today and really, really excited to talk to him. So, Bill, thank you so very much for joining me here today, for joining us. Oh, well, you're welcome. I am, I am happy to be talking about my book that I thought disappeared five or six years ago. Not, not so. <laughs> I'm not glad so you found fast. it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. And so again, the book is called The Forever Year. It's a novel based on the real life romance of George Gipp and Iris Trapier. Now, just in case you're curious, as I mentioned before, you can find the book on Amazon, of course, but you can also find it on BillFullerBooks.com, which is where it's just Bill's official website where you can see all of his work. But before we get to Forever Year, could you share with us a little bit about your upbringing and how your interest in writing kind of blossomed? Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Ohio, Warren, Ohio, uh, northeastern Ohio, you know, near all the factories, Youngstown, Ohio, the public steel, auto plants, um, auto, auto uh, assembly, not auto assembly plants near me, but uh, uh, we, we had a wiring harness plant in Warren, Ohio that was, you know, Packard Electric that was destined for uh, GM cars. 
So I grew up in that type of environment and football was very big in my hometown. We had a couple state championship teams. I did not play. I was a big fan, but I did not play. And I, I, I always, I think as a kid, I gravitated toward movies, which of course in those days you went to the theater for the most part to see. And my parents would take me to see, you know, oh gosh, everything from West Side Story or kids movies like Mary Poppins, uh, Old Yeller and all that. And I, I became fascinated with that arena. And one of the first things I wrote was, uh, and I still have it, it's uh, basically after I saw Mary Poppins, I came home and in crayon and I was eight, I think, and just basically just didn't rewrite the story, but just wrote it out as an eight-year-old would write it with lousy illustrations, you know, stick figures and all that. And, you know, and, and that grew into a real love for, uh, for, for writing, which was kind of at the same time balanced by or a love for television and movies. I used to watch All in the Family with my parents, Mary Tyler Moore, and Lost in Space, and all those things. And you know, that's that's the other thing that I got into in my life. But uh, as far as the the writing, it really grew out of movies that I loved and wanting to become a writer myself. And so, in high school, I worked on the yearbook at Notre Dame. I ended up edit, editing the yearbook my senior year. Oh, fantastic! And although I was supposed to go to law school. That was kind of the path for me because my brother-in-law was a lawyer and it was always like, oh, you can join his practice. It, it, it took to about my junior year at Notre Dame to realize I, I have no interest in being a lawyer. I think lawyers are great, but it just didn't feel like me. I wanted to continue into writing. And so I, I pursued that path. But excellent. ever since I was a kid, there was just this, this, this fever for you know, creating and especially creating, coming up with my own stories and characters in Forever Year, which of course was published at least in book form in 2016, I believe. So one of the things that struck me early on as I was reading it was how you were able to relay a very strong sense of place with the reader. That is something that when I'm reading, typically read nonfiction, and it's something I'm always looking for. And in fiction, it gives you, I think, a little bit more sway to, to kind of more fully develop and create that space. But being a Notre Dame graduate yourself, I do, I do suppose that explains a little bit about that, as you mentioned, but can you share with us how you enjoyed your time as a student at Notre Dame? Yeah, I mean, I loved Notre Dame. I, I you know, had a decent high school experience, but Notre Dame, I, and like college for so many people, your eyes are just open to all different people, to, to the most freedom you've ever had up until that point in your life. And of course, Notre Dame was a wonderful place to be, just a beautiful campus that if you wanted to, you could live your life right on that campus. And, and although we eventually start going into South Bend and especially to Chicago, to Chicago for trips and all that, but it's just a beautiful, positive kind of a place, good people. And I just sopped up the experience. I mean, I, I can still remember graduating. My parents came with my sister for graduation they left. And then the, it was either later that day or the next day, it was time for me to leave and take my car and drive back to Ohio. And I just remember just thinking, oh boy, I am going to miss this place. You know, very often you don't feel that way until years later, but I knew it's like, this is going to be a tough transition because right. it was just really up until that point. And, and still one of the two or three best experiences of my life for those four years in one day. Just so our listeners know, uh, Bill's out on the West Coast. Do you make it back to campus very often? I do. I haven't been there in a few years, but I, there was a time when I was going back very frequently for football games. I did an interview back there not all that long ago, uh, but I, I I would like to think that this season should everything continue to 
get better with, with, with COVID and all that, that I will, that I will go to a game because it's, it's just the best, best weekend you can imagine. I've taken so many people there for the first time and they like, like, take me again, take me again. It's just oh, it's, it's special. winning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and speaking of football, can you, can you walk us through the origin story of forever year? You clearly had done a ton of research and it was so, it was wildly impressive, but did you wake up one morning and decide that, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to tackle one of the biggest legends in college football. <laughs> Walk us through that. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I was, a, I knew about George Gipp when I was at Notre Dame. I knew about his legend. I knew about, you know, him being this legendary player, the one for the Gipper speech. I knew that his ghost supposedly haunted Washington hall where there had been a pool room as I learned later. Um, but it wasn't until I was back for a game and I was at the Notre Dame bookstore after I saw Patrick Chowan's book, uh, I believe it's called One for the Gipper. And I thought, oh, this could be interesting. I knew, you know, it just was just one of those things where I wanted to get some reading for the trip home. And I thought, well, maybe I'll learn a little bit more about Gip. And I can remember on the plane coming back to L.A. just thinking, this is an incredible story. This, you know, the story of this James Dean type in the 1919-1920 era, the, the ill fate, the romance he had with Iris, which almost saved his life, but didn't. You know, his, his, the father figure he had in New Rockney, the difficult family he came from, his friendship with, with Hunk Anderson, who went on to be an NFL coach. Um, it was, it was, it just, it just got it into my, you know, under my skin. And I was working for many years in television with a writing partner. So we wrote it as a screenplay uh, first. And it got some interest. It, it, it was optioned a couple of times, was never sold. Uh, so it, a few years later, when I decided I, I was the TV work, I was a little slow at the time. And I thought, oh, other people write novels. Maybe I should try to write a novel. So I asked my writing partner if he'd mind if I would take, take the, the bare bones of our story and turn it into a novel. And so that was what I did. And it was, it was challenging because a screenplay is pretty much all dialogue with some descriptions. So you've got to try to nail a character in dialogue. And, you know, sometimes you can say uh, sarcastically or he looks like he might be brooding, but those things are kind of frowned upon, especially when a, a, a movie gets into production. So with the novel, it was like all internal. And that was such a challenge because you have to be inside the heads of those characters. And so it's like, what's what George might be thinking at this time? And what is this, this, this self-destructive element that he has and how do you see that play out in his thoughts and in his encounters with people? There was that. And then there was the research, which thankfully by the time I started writing the novel, 2013, 2014, the internet had come into prominence, which it wasn't when we wrote the screenplay in 1999, right. did a lot of research in library. So I was able to look up things and really learn more about them. Of course, I knew a lot about the Notre Dame campus and, you know, from my own experiences there, but the history of the Sacred Heart Church, uh, the stained glass windows, uh, Cartier, Cartier, Cartier Field that was the preceded stadium. Right. You know, I was able to learn a lot about that and just put that into the writing and also the, the history of the times. You know, so you're writing something that takes place really in 1919 and 1920. First discovered, okay, there was radio didn't come out until sometime in 1920. So, okay. We can't have somebody that isn't at the game listening to the game on the radio. What did they do? And, and that was when I made a change from what we did in our screenplay because I discovered that 
people would often get in groups, just take, you know, take some drinks, take some food and go to a Western Union office. And the guy would come out with it. You'd pay the guy, give him, you know, give him some bucks. And he, he'd come out with the ticker tape of the progress of the game. So you might get six or seven updates in the course of a game to find out whether your team won or lost. So, you know, those were things that were fascinating at the time, you know, and, just to learn. Oh my gosh. You're taking me back to a part in the book where you expertly weave that in as Iris is like on yeah. the corner down in Indianapolis. And all of a sudden she's surrounded by perfect strangers, but it's like, Oh yeah, I'm kind of George Gibbs <laughs> girlfriend. All of a sudden she's the toast of the corner. And I absolutely <laughs> loved that scene. No. So thank you for sharing that. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, because you had, it was like, okay, we, I want to show that she's interested in, she's this growing interest in football is a result of her interest in George. Yes. But I don't think I wanted to come to this game and I believe it was an away game. So it was like, well, how is she going to get any idea of this game other than reading the paper the next day, which isn't particularly exciting. Not so yet. thankfully I, I discovered that, that, uh, that, that element. Oh, there's just certain points in the book that I just like, it's like hard not for me personally, it was just hard not to smile. So, and that was one of them. And so forever year, is as you kind of touched on some of some of the scenes had to be kind of created based on what we do know about the era and what we do know about the people but forever year is is a work of historical fiction uh blended with elements of of (laughs) romance as well and you were tasked with building a narrative around two people you know george gipp iris trapier that even to this day are still shrouded in a lot of mystery Mm -hmm. and i think that's probably why People are like myself, I guess, are quite fond of George Gipp. There's that mysterious side of him. But let's start, let's start with Gipper. As most of the listeners know, I've got a bit of an affinity for Gipp. <laughs> and something that I, I just think you nailed him. You everything that I've ever thought Gipp to be. And you just nailed it again a, a minute ago when you mentioned one name that I'm like, I've never thought of it this way, but that's exactly right. Gipp is the closest thing that college football has had to a James Dean ever. Yeah. And it's incredibly astute. So I, so I wrote that down. I couldn't forget it. But anyways, you know, I believe, I, I believe you nailed the way he spoke, his mannerisms. I mean, he was, he was a rascal, an endearing rascal, but a rascal yeah. Yeah. nonetheless. So share with us, how did you get in the mind of George Gipp? Yeah, it was tough because he was often at odds with himself. You know, he was very generous. He did give to, they, they, they were, you know, the homeless which they weren't called in those days, but he would he would hand out money for them. Sometimes he'd give somebody a flask of whiskey or something. He was very, very generous with the people. He treated everybody, I think, as equals, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm this big football god. Uh, I'm just going to rain my grace down on you. I think he felt a little lesser. I think just from his upbringing, from the religious upbringing, the fact that his father did not like football. His father was a minister, a deacon in the church, you know, and he, he was gifted at pretty much every sport and he was incredible, but it, it didn't bring him a lot of joy. He wasn't exactly a team player. He wasn't, he wasn't a showboat, but he wasn't a team player. Just like walking off the field and lighting up a cigarette, which is something that I read that he did. Oh, you, yes. know, <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. I'm done. Yeah. You know, and there'd be cheers. It wasn't, I think until, later in it toward the end of his life where he especially that army game where everybody stood up silently kind of in awe of him that he began to feel like wow i am bringing them joy as opposed to i'm great you know so it it was tough he 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 liked women he certainly had 
a lot of you know women in in his life, but he didn't want to get too close to them because he was certain he would disappoint them. You know, and these were just little nuggets picked up from research from the several books that Murray Spurvers did it. Oh, yeah. That's some great stuff about George Gibb in his book and any little bit of research that, that, that could be gleaned off the internet or, or any, anywhere else. But it's tough to build a character. I think if anything, he was probably even more laconic and quiet than we portrayed him in the screenplay and then I eventually portrayed him in the novel. But that's not a character anybody's going to be particularly interested. So you just take those elements you might make you make him maybe a little bit more conversant, but still keep him to be this sort of troubled, almost self-hating kind of a guy. Yes, absolutely. The image of George Gipp for the longest time has, of course, been I'm picking up what you're what you're putting down here, Bill, has, of course, been, you know, Ronald Reagan. But yes. you look uh, you look at the like this is probably the most famous photograph of Gipp. Yes. You see sadness in his eyes. You don't see any you don't see any semblance of youthful exuberance where yeah. he's having the time of his life, even though he is one of the most famous sportsmen in America. And for, for the reasons that, that you, and I, that's what I think a lot of people don't know about Gip, but I think that you captured so very well here. And so I, first of all, I have to thank you for that. And again, the book is called the forever year. You can find it on Amazon or bill fuller books if you haven't picked up on it, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit smitten by this work. So, uh, and I, and I, you know what, I have no problem expressing my admiration for things like, like, it's just, it, it was very personal to me being a, a very big Gip fan and not having read him in, in this way. It's, it was, it was emotional. It was enlightening. It was humorous. It was jaw dropping. It was everything you say, but let, let me pick it up on the army game. You, you have this moment where you talk about everybody is like just in awe at Gip on the gridiron and people like literally are just like silent because it's just like sheer admiration for his efforts. And I think you're right. Maybe that was a watershed moment because of course, just a couple of weeks later, he's up in Evanston at Northwestern and it's George Gip day and yes. Gip, Gip in all likelihood, Bill, as you know, and as, as I know, he's, he's in all likelihood, he's dying even yeah, then. And he and rock, has no interest putting him in this ball game. But yet at the very end of the game, despite physical injuries, obviously sickness, he goes in because he feels like he owes it to, to the fans. And it's, I think the George Gipp for the last month of his life just drastically contrasted the George Gipp of the first two plus decades of his life. And I think that's yeah. really interesting. And I, that's yet another thing. Okay. And we could talk about George Gipp, but I don't want to shortchange Iris. So how did you construct the character of, of Iris? You mentioned offline that you had read George and Iris's or George's letters to Iris. Uh-huh. Walk us through that, please. <laughs> yeah, it was very moving because, of course, they're handwritten, which everything was in those days. I mean, a love letter, you're not going to type. But, uh, you know, it, it might be written on a computer as an email now, but it's nice to think that they, and he had good penmanship. And, but it was just a lot. It was a combination of mundane things about what was going on. In the, I, I remember one of them, he was playing uh, summer baseball up in Michigan for one of the corporations. They used to hire a bunch of athletes to play for their teams almost as ringers, and they'd pay him, they'd put him up. And it was a little, it was interesting enough to him, but not particularly, but it was, you know, he, he, you could tell he loved her and, you know, it wasn't a Shakespearean, but at the same time, you know, he, he, he conveyed the fact that he was missing her every day, 
missing being with her. Just, it is just, it was, it, I, I remember reading those and they were encased in, you know, clear plastic, which probably saved them from the tears that myself and probably other people shed when were reading them. Right. But really, I mean, it, and again, even more so than the actual words in the letter was the fact that, my God, I am reading a letter that this man, you know, had his hand on a pen and wrote, you know, 80 years ago. Uh, it just, the whole experience was really, it was profound. It was just, you know, thinking this, these people really existed. And that's sometimes when you get caught and, and most of what I've done in television has been half hour television and comedies, very little that I've done. That's been real life characters. And so then all of a sudden you're writing a screenplay and eventually a novel and it, it hits you every once in a while. These are real people. We, I owe them, we owe them something. I owe them something. I owe, I owe telling their lives as well and as accurately as possible to their memories and to their families. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And Shakespearean feels like it might be a little bit out of character for George Kipp. And so yeah. I, who knows? I, he's, he's a surprise, not anything else. He's a surprising person for our yeah. listeners, Bill, could you please share, you mentioned that you worked in television. Can you give us a bit of uh, your greatest hits reel? Like some of the shows <laughs> you've worked on. I, I'm familiar. I read your website, but for those who maybe haven't like share with us some of the shows you've worked on. Yeah, I started working in television in 1989 and um, still do a little dabbling, you know, now, not as much as back in the day, but shows back in the 80s, Newhart, Night Court, worked on those, some shows that came and went. I had three three seasons on Living Single, which was an incredible experience. That was probably my one of my two favorite experiences working in TV and my writing partner and I executive produced the show the last year, um, a show called For Your Love then off to New York for a while to work on Hope and Faith, a uh, show with Kelly Ripa, Faith Ford, and Ted McGinley that I got to meet Regis on because he, he guest starred because of his uh, relationship with Kelly, uh, a show called Good Witch for a couple of years, not all that long, uh, on the Hallmark Channel, kind of a, a romantic, allowed me to kind of use my romantic chops, you know, especially from a novel like this, because yeah. the show definitely was kind of a combination of some occult and some, and, and lots of romance. And, and, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a good run. Again, the majority of the shows I worked on were, were half hour comics. And yes, I, I love that. And that's why it was impossible to write this story forever year without bringing humor into it. And it, and it is funny. And I, I would just stress that I would stress that to, to the readers or to the listeners, and then hopefully the eventual readers, yeah. the, the book, the book is funny and the book, it, it just, it, it pulls so many different chords and pulls so many different levers that, you know, maybe you're not, I told this to Bill off air. I, I don't read a lot of fiction. This book, it, it, it just, it kind of just sits with you. And it, and it, I don't know, it, it touches, especially if you really are interested in this, in Notre Dame football or George Gippett, or just a good story. It really sits next to your heart while you read it. So I, I flew through it and I absolutely adored it. But I particularly love too, how you brought in some secondary characters into the fold. So it was almost, it felt almost like fan service to people like me. So like you brought in, you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, Knut Rocky makes a, an appearance, which I loved. And Hunk Anderson, Hartley Anderson, who was Gip's kind of, I always thought of him as more of a de facto friend because like, did Gip actually have friends? And that's something that I thought you really painted really well. Okay. So Hunk is of course, very unheralded in the annals of Notre Dame yeah. history. Yeah. So other than the two protagonists here, of course, George and Iris, did you have like a favorite secondary character? 
Well, I mean, I loved Hunk's character. I think George, I think George disdained most friendships. I think Hunk not only did did favors for him continuously and much to you know his eventual too, to to screw the Hunk sometimes in, in yeah. the process, but I think he was a non kind of a no bullshit person. He 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 believed in George's talents, but he didn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm a big rah-rah for you. Thank God we've got you on the team. You know, so that I think George respected that. And I and I just the hunk was again, hunk was everything George was not in so many ways, but he didn't have any of the marquee value of George. Right. And I think when Hunk communicated that to George when he finally went off on him about the fact that I work my butt off and you do nothing and you skip practices and you drink and you gamble and look at you, you know, you're the one that everybody wants to enter because you're so great. And he presented that. Um, I like Newt Rockney is just a fascinating character in the history of football. I've read books about him and as I'm sure you have as well. He was, he really was the PT Barnum of his generation. He, there's a story that's not in this, but it's not related to this book, which you may be familiar with that he, during one game, this was why some people, I think, call the one for the Gipper thing into question. Uh, did he really say that? Did that really happen on um, that bedside moment? He told players, 1928 maybe, he told his players that his son was ill and in the hospital and might not make it. So uh, please, please win this game for my son, Billy, I think, it might have been one of his other sons. And then, of course, they win the game and the kids in the stands. Yes. Oh, yeah. And those and those who didn't know that he was in the stands when they when they rode the train back to South Bend and he was like out there waving to him. And they that's right. That's right. That's you're like, oh, this I mean, it's so it's so true. Rock was yes. such a character. <laughs> so you could make a case for did George really say have him win one for the Gipper? Did wasn't I, I know that Newt. Newt did, in fact, go to his you know, the hospital several times. But, you know, I think in, in working on the story, both as a screenplay and especially as a novel, it's like, I want to believe that this guy finally stopped thinking of somebody other than himself and finally realized, OK, maybe my example is going to be good for these guys. And maybe it's time for me to give them some credit for what they do. And so I, I, I firmly now, you know, years later, I believe absolutely. He probably didn't say it exactly the way he knew Rockneyized it, I'm sure. But oh, I think yeah. the gist of that, of those words was, 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 was absolutely true. Well, and Bill, I couldn't agree more. And for the reasons we were kind of discussing earlier, if it would have been the George Gipp of the first 23 plus years of his life or whatever it was, I, I'd be like, eh. but you really did see a, a transformation in what George Gipp was over the last month of his life, as we kind of discussed. And so at that point, I can I can believe things that maybe I wouldn't have when examining that first huge swath of his life. Yeah. So yeah. I'm with you. And then Violet uh, is a great character. Violet was a fictional character. Yes, thank you. I was going to bring up Violet. But you've got to come up with that. You know, for whether it's a novel or a screenplay, you've got to come up with that character that we learn more about the other person through. You know, what what is how does Iris what how does handle how does Iris handle Gip dumping her? How does she handle? You know, it's because she needs somebody to talk to. Uh, just like obviously, Hunk already existed, so you know that was an easy relationship to, to to build upon. But Violet was, and Violet had the confidence that Iris lacked. She had, she was, you know, she was she was a little bit heavy, but it was like, hey, I am you. She's like kind of the Lizzo of <laughs> yeah. 1919, 1920, you know, she was just like, here I am. I am beautiful. I'm, 
I'm, I am, I am happy with myself and somebody's going to be lucky to get me. And she was smart, yes. you know, and, and yet she was there to for Iris too, in any way that she could possibly be. Right. She and I was, was pulling, I was class. pulling for, I was pulling for Violet the entire book. I'll <laughs> tell you, and like, and it all, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too much, but it, it, you know, I was happy for her character. Yes. Um, yeah. It, it was <laughs> Had to give her that beautiful yes. history in the book. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, if you want to know, I want to just reiterate the fact that something I think Bill does excellent expertly even in this book is just, is creating the scene. So George and Iris meet at this, uh, at this dance at St. Mary's and it's just, you feel like you're there, but I think everybody knows how this book ends, at least the major yeah. event at the end of the book. And that's of course that George Gipp dies, but even so, I mean, you feel this, the, the race that Iris, Iris wants to see George one final time. And again, even though you know how the book ends, it's impossible not to kind of feel that lump in your throat, your eyes getting moist. At least I did. That's just the, the truth. But I think the scene stealer of the entire thing, Bill, I'll tell you, is the first time George and Iris go out and he takes her to the Oliver and he and he yeah. just takes her around town and says, This is this is a night in the life of George Gipp. And yeah, I thought that was just incredible. Yeah, so, she sees both sides of his life. She sees the side of him that they play in the Notre Dame Victory March when he walks into the uh the restaurant okay. and they all know him well and they treat him like a king. And then she sees the size where he goes to essentially a speakeasy. Yeah, and, Mike's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Holly and Mike's, which exact was a cigar store, you know, with with the 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 uh, pub, you know, past the. <laughs> oh yeah, and Rock couldn't get too mad at Gip for going to Holly and Mike's because Rock was always there too. I mean, yeah, yeah. My final question uh, before we wrap up here, and like I, said, I am very very appreciative of your time here, Bill. When you wrote this book, did you have a particular audience in mind? I can see where this work would attract folks who read romance, historical fiction, Notre Dame fans, someone who just plain enjoys a really strong narrative. But did you write this for the Irish football fan? And and the only reason I ask this is because I try to take in as much gip all the time as I can. And I felt like I was five years too late in, in in, in finding this. So I'm trying to make sure that everyone knows about this. But when you wrote the book, who, who'd you have in mind? I would say the Irish, the Irish football fan, um, certainly fans of romantic novels. Uh, it's tough, you know, that, that you kind of have to feel like, OK, am I passionate enough about this story to do it justice? And, and of course, you're not going to as, as, a, as a screenwriter and also as a novelist, you don't want to pick a subject. I, I, actually, no, that's the, I shouldn't say that. You pick a subject that you are so passionate about that you're going to put all the work in to get it done. And if it sells well, fine. If it doesn't, well, you've, you've got it out, put it out there in the universe. So I think first and foremost, I, I, it sounds a little arrogant. I wrote it for me. It's like, I have to put this story down. We wrote it as a screenplay. Years later, I turned it into a book, into a novel. I, I think it was just one of those things where I was like, boy, if if I die without having written this story, regardless of what happens with it, you know, I will have missed, you know, maybe one of the important callings of my life. And that, that is truly the way I feel about it. It's, you know, I think if you write it well, you know, if you build it, people will come. <laughs> well, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I hope after listening to this, some of you will pick this book up and give it a read. It's, it's fantastic. It's fascinating. It shows Gip in a way that even if you're a 
uh, a wannabe GIP expert. You haven't seen him in this light and you haven't seen him and felt him this vividly. And I say that again as as a wannabe de facto GIP expert. But I, I just thank you for doing this. And and I, oh. I'm glad that you you feel such a personal stake in it because that's, that's probably why, if I may say, it's so damn good. So, Bill, I really appreciate your time. Oh, and thank you so I'm much. i to be able to talk to you about this book. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Revive all my great memories of, of George's story. Oh, it's, it's, it's simply wonderful. And if you are interested in obtaining a copy, it's the forever year. It's by Bill Fuller. It's on amazon.com. Or again, jump over to Bill Fuller books and see the wide breadth of his work. Bill, thank you for joining Onward to Victory oh, at sure. Notre Dame football podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate it. Of oh, course. by the way, you know, Al, uh, Iris really did keep that football pin that he gave her all of her life. And at the end of her life, she told her grandchildren that he was the love of her life. Uh, she died in the 1970s, I think, 71, 72. I found uh, her, yeah, I actually, yeah. In, in kind of preparing for this, I guess it didn't come up, found her obituary and I and I read it and it was, yeah. uh, I mean, it just, it, it's just all so fascinating. But yeah, head over to uh, BillFullerBooks.com again. Check out Bill's work. Check out The Forever Year and everything else that Bill has done in a very storied career. And we thank you so very much for joining us here today. Oh, thank and, you so much, Alex. Absolutely, it was a joy. <laughs> I thought so too. I'm glad. I'm glad we're. I'm glad we're singing out of the same hymn. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Everybody, stay tuned for show wrap, and I will be right back. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that talk. This episode, I think, will be otherwise known as two passionate dudes talking about one of the most sensational yet misunderstood sportsmen of all time, George Gipp. I'd like to thank Bill for his time and his graciousness in speaking with us and joining me on the show today. So thank you again, Bill. Your company was incredibly appreciated. And, and you know, I learned a lot about one of my biggest sports heroes. That's George Gipp. So thank you again, Bill, again, and the book is called The Forever Year, and it is absolutely fantastic if you did not pick up on that over the course of the last 40 or so odd minutes. And I'll tell you that Bill is a super guy. You know, after we had wrapped the interview and kind of signed off, we stayed on for about 15, 20 more minutes just kind of chatting, and it's not often that you find people who are that gracious with their time. You know, I am a complete random person who reached out to him seeing if he would speak to me, and he was kind enough to oblige, and so thank you again, Bill. And just as a quick reminder, my conversation with Bill Fuller was brought to you by WCScreens.com and also the Consensus All-Americans. That is, of course, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, and Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana. Thanks again, fellas. And if you are interested in joining the Consensus All-American team, it's really easy, actually. Just head over to paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation, or if you'd like to give a monthly donation, it's patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Please know that all donations are absolutely appreciated and absolutely keep the lights on around here. So again, thank you to Michael. Thank you to Brad. Thank you to wcscreens.com. So moving on, what is coming down the pike? Well, it's that time of year. Guess what, folks? Next episode will be the 2021 official Onward to Victory season preview episode. One of the most popular 
offerings of the entire year. At least it has been the last couple of years. So I will be breaking down every single position group, every game on the schedule, telling you who might be one of the team's sleepers, who you should watch for, some of those unheralded names, who's the breakout stars, who can we expect to have monster seasons from, everything. 2021 Irish football season A to Z. That's coming down the pike here towards the end of August because, of course, we do kick off here on September 5th, 2021 in Tallahassee versus the Florida State Seminoles, and that is coming up so quickly. Exactly one calendar month from this very day. And also, before I forget, a special thank you to show pal Joseph Rakish, whose song Knut Rockney serves as our theme song. If you are interested in giving it a spin, head over to Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Music, however it is that you digest music, head on over there and take in that one, plus many others that Joseph has on those streaming services. And of course, thank you to you who allows me and affords me the opportunity to continue to do this show. While it's great to have friends of the show, of course, those ardent supporters, well, frankly, if there was no one to listen to it, it all would be a moot So thank you all for electing to join me here today, and hopefully you found this episode as enthralling as I did. So I had better sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. (laughs) 